Welcome to the Hope Beyond Trauma podcast. I'm your host, Rhoda Hostetler. There are literally millions of listening options out there, but today you chose this one. I hope whichever episode you're about to hear gives you something worthwhile to think about and a greater ability to love. Thank you so much for being here today. Today's episode is about Harriet Tubman. And the reason I'm bringing this episode to you as the first hero that we look at is simply because she was my childhood hero. I remember being about eight or nine years old. Yeah, somewhere in there. And reading her story, I got to the part where she takes a brick to her head because a slave was escaping and she was standing in his way, like standing in the way of the slave master. And the slave master threw the brick and it ended up hitting Harriet. And she was knocked out. It took her several days to recover and she never recovered to her full, her full health. And yet she didn't back down in her views on slavery and freedom. She was tenacious, she was resilient. And when I, as a child, read that story, it was the tenacity, the resilience, the ability to literally take a brick to her head and not change her views that it, it lit a fire in me. Like I wanted to be like her. She was born as Araminta Ross, nicknamed Minty. And yes, she was born into slavery. In childhood, she went by Minty, but after reaching freedom, she renamed herself Harriet. I'll be using both of her names, so don't be confused. Minty becomes Harriet. Same person. It's likely that the events that steered her towards her activities in adulthood occurred rather early in her childhood. Before her memory begins, she knew how to find the North Star, and she knew that the North Star meant freedom. She is quoted as saying that she always knew that. She was a toddler when her sister just older than her, her playmate, was sold, never to be seen again. Author Beverly Lowry suggests that perhaps her drive to get one more person free came from this deep sense of loss, the sense that no matter where she looked or how well she looked, someone was missing, that maybe the next day's efforts would find that missing person. Whether or not her drive to free other slaves came from this loss, it is doubtlessly true that such a loss would have had a profound impact on her. Research today indicates that children grieve separation from siblings more deeply than they grieve separation from parents even. Slave life was not secure. Anyone could be sold at any time for any reason, none of them good. They developed friendships, married, had babies, all under the weight of this great uncertainty. Legally, they were considered property. Harriet would later describe her childhood as that of growing up as a neglected weed. She would lose more siblings to the slave trade before she escaped for freedom. She loved the outdoors, to the point that she would perform poorly on indoor work and take whatever punishment they gave her until they finally gave up and decided to see if she worked better outdoors. She would go on to learn to recognize many plants and to know how to read a forest so well that she could travel a forest at night. At the age of six, Minty was forced to work away from her mother. By the time she was seven, she had already been so beaten for perceived imperfections that her face was permanently scarred. Those who knew Harriet throughout her adulthood and into her old age describe a woman who had the ability 
to remain calm under severe duress. She had poise, they said. The ability to remain calm under duress must have helped immensely when trying to stay ahead of slave catchers and uh, navigate other precarious and dangerous life situations well. If you think of all she endured in early childhood, no wonder she could remain calm in duress. Perhaps she did have to develop and practice the skill of staying calm. Perhaps it was simply part of her personality, but perhaps she learned young that panic only escalates a situation. Around the age of 12 or 13, Minty happened to be present when another slave appeared to be about to escape. This is the brick incident that I mentioned that so, uh, impacted me when I was reading about it first. She took the brick that was intended for him and she took it to her head. She nearly died and for the rest of her life she would experience the side effects of the man's decision to throw the brick. So she knew quite personally how expensive even wanting freedom could be. Even thinking about running for freedom could cost you and it could cost those near you. She knew this well before adulthood. Her wound here potentially protected her from being sold, which allowed her to know the area she was in quite well. Because she randomly fell asleep, she was considered less valuable than other slaves. She may not have been as likely to make the treks she made had she been sold to slaveholders in various locations. After the brick incident, she began to have random spells where she would hear music or see visions. Around the age of 13, she began praying on a regular basis to God. I found the word psychic used to describe her visions, but when Harriet was asked to describe her own belief system, she credits it to God. She was a believer, and the little I could find on the background of her belief system said that it was a female preacher who led her to the Lord and discipled her. This was an era where the Christian church was divided. Some were using the Bible to argue for slavery, and others were using the Bible to argue against it. Women were considered less than. Slaves were considered property, so for someone outside of slave quarters to be this deeply influential in her faith journey is remarkable. However, she developed her beliefs. She eventually came to strongly believe that slavery was an affront to God. I couldn't find much on her Christian faith in books, though. Most authors use the phrase psychic visions to explain her success in freeing others, but again, that's not how she described it. She said she would pray constantly on missions, and she would receive specific instructions such as get into the ditch, and by adhering to these instructions received during prayer, she never lost a slave to slave catchers. But that is getting into her adulthood. Minty's mom fought tooth and nail to keep her youngest, a boy named Moses, from being sold. Mom Ross hid Minty's brother in the woods and wouldn't be manipulated into giving his location away. At one point, she threatened the master saying that the first white man to cross a certain line, I think it was the the entrance into her uh, slave quarters, is going to take a serious injury to the head. Whatever had happened in the past must have been such that the master believed Minty's mom to be willing and able to actually follow through on her threat. I think we found where Minty got her fierceness. After the master and the buyer finally gave up several months later, Minty's mom went and got Moses out of the woods. So, Minty had a mom who was an example of tenacity and boldness on the behalf of another in the face of great danger. She grew up, Minty grew up, and married a free man named John Tubman, but she was still a slave. Minty Tubman was now in a unique position. 
She could be sold out of the marriage at any time, and her free husband could potentially be enslaved if he followed her into a state with different laws. John and Minty did not have any children, so there were no new slaves from this marriage. Minty was sickly, she was stubborn, she was inquisitive, she was digging for information that her master didn't want her to know, such as, were the sales of her siblings even legal? That's too much curiosity, and she was not giving birth to new slaves. So her master began to try to sell her. She believed that if her master would repent, he would not only not sell her, he would actually set his slaves free. So she prayed hard for her master's repentance, but he was unwavering in his efforts to sell her. So finally, she prayed a frantic, desperate prayer. Lord, if you're never going to change his heart, kill him. Take him out of the way. Less than one week after praying that, her master is dead. Harriet is struck with deep, deep remorse, as if her prayer is what killed him. After her master died, following her prayer, Harriet's visions ceased to be random and inexplicable, and they began to follow a pattern. Horses, slaves, pursuit of freedom. Horses, slaves, pursuit of freedom. In response, she experiences a strong urgency to run for freedom. But her free husband tells her not to. He would rather risk her being sold and lost to the world of slavery than to support her in her run for freedom. There's more than just her visions that are telling her to run, though. She's also hearing the conversations on the plantation. But in his mind, there's a chance she will not actually be sold. She'll still be a slave, but she'll be a slave who is around for him to have as his wife. However, in her mind, she is going to be sold if she stays. The visions she experiences and the conversations she hears assure her of it. For him, her choosing to stay enslaved means he still has her. For her, she's going to lose him anyways, either if she runs to, for freedom or if she is sold to the slave trade. Apparently, she does not have confidence that he would follow her if she was sold off. So, as Harriet later describes this particular decision... God was telling her to run, through, to run through the visions that had become part of her prayer life, and her husband was telling her to stay. To her, it was a choice of, do I please my husband, who doesn't have my best interests at heart, or do I please God? I'm going to read an excerpt from the book Harriet Tubman, Imagining a Life, by author Beverly Lowry. No one else can act for her or on her behalf. She must find the courage to follow God's instructions. She has to do her part. She must choose to apply her will and be strong enough for the battle ahead. And if she makes the choice to fight, she becomes the agent of her own destiny. How then can she be owned? They can kill her or punish her, but they have no claim on her soul. She thinks all of this out, and once she has surveyed her options, she makes a resolve. She will not be sold. Let the dogs come, the chain and the whip. Let death come on. She will not be sold, she tells no one. Her husband, sorry, her mother is too impulsive and will raise a ruckus. Her husband is apt to betray her. She eventually does decide to invite her brothers to run with her after all. They attempt to run for freedom under the cover of darkness. The brothers convince her to turn back. Perpetual slavery looks more appealing than potential freedom, but we shouldn't be too hard on them for this. 
they didn't know how good freedom was. And when you don't know how good freedom is, or you're not convinced that it really could be that good, well, no wonder potential slavery looked better than the risks and costs of the pursuit of freedom. You really could get killed running for freedom. It's noteworthy here. Minty's husband, her mom, and her brothers all appear to think that loving Minty meant keeping her close to themselves. They opposed her freedom. They opposed her actual long-term good because of, well, they loved her with a kind of love that would rather she stay a slave as long as she's a slave who is in their lives. Maybe they were simply more comfortable with the ongoing pain of slavery than the potential of losing Minty to death if she did run. Eventually, Minty decides to run for freedom by herself. I'm going to read another excerpt. Her eyes, this is Minty, her eyes steady upon the doctor. Harriet stands her ground. Thompson, this is the slave master, clicks his horse closer. The sky deepens. Mosquitoes gather, creating a prelude to the night. She can wait no longer. It is time to take her first steps down the road. But first, there is Thompson, sitting on that horse of his, between her and the gate leading east. Once again, Harriet resorts to political theater. Suddenly, as if struck by a commandment from on high, she lifts her chin, opens her mouth, and begins to sing. Not quietly or to herself, but forcefully, without a trace of embarrassment or self-consciousness, using the rich, resonant tones everybody who ever heard her sing or talk will comment on. I'm sorry, I'm going to leave you. Farewell, oh fare farewell. From his saddle, Thompson eyes her, querulously, perhaps even bemusedly. Such a strange creature is this young slave woman, sometimes a little balmy, but such spunk to have hired herself out the way she did. Perhaps the doctor even feels something akin to admiration for her eccentric ways, since despite her rascally behavior and regular bouts of illness, and possibly out of spiteful feelings towards the Brodess family, he continues to hire her and to keep her on the place instead of returning her to her rightful owner in Bucktown. She sings some more here. But I'll meet you in the morning. Farewell, oh farewell. The doctor is used to hearing the laborers sing. They chant as they go to work, walk, gather up their tools, come out in the morning, go home at night. One voice rings out, then another, until an entire field of men and women joins in. The resulting harmonies resonate through, through the countryside and are quite beautiful and moving. The songs tell of Moses, the promised land, the chariot that is going to swing down and take them all to Canaan. Methodist songs, Bible songs, gospel songs, songs a minister like himself would find comforting. He might even congratulate himself, believing that his lessons have sunk in. Not understanding that the promised land the black people long for is not spiritual heaven, but New Jersey or even Canada. He walks his horse a few steps towards Harriet. She bows as they pass, but does not pause as a slave might be expected to in order to pay her respects and see if he might have something to tell her, some job he needs her to perform. Instead, she walks toward the gate, moving on to the next chorus of her song, which she sings even louder. I'll meet you in the morning. I'm bound for the promised land on the other side of Jordan bound for the promised land. With darkness coming on and her brothers done with work for the day, they cannot but know what their sister's song is telling them, especially Ben and Harry, if they are in Poplar Neck, who would be only too well aware of her intentions. Their father would also understand the message. Only Rit, that's her mom, remains in the dark, perhaps protected from the truth by other family members, as she will be in other times when other children take the road north. Reaching the gate, Harriet looks back. 
but the doctor sits as before, twisted around in his saddle, watching her as if slightly puzzled, perhaps even bedazzled by her effrontery. I've never met that word before other than reading this book. Um, it seems to be a synonym to boldness, perhaps even bedazzled by her E-F-F-R-O-N-T-E-R-Y. When he makes no sign, she opens the gate, goes through, latches it behind her. The doctor waits. She goes on resolutely, as if with a job to do. Several steps, then several more. Then she turns around and comes back a step or two, hoping perhaps that Thompson has ridden on, leaving her safe to make one more attempt to alert Mary. But Thompson sits, as if frozen. Undaunted, Harriet lifts the gate latch again, as if having neglected to secure it properly the first time, and firmly relocks it, as if to say, There. And then, after giving Thompson a cheeky wave goodbye, she turns her back and rolls on down the road, triumphantly exploding once again into song. I'll meet you in the morning, safe in the promised land, on the other side of Jordan, bound for the promised land. The last notes of the song drift behind her, and Thompson, he sits, watches. Later, after she's gone, he will say that as her voice floated back in the evening air to his mind, a wave of trouble never rolled across her peaceful breast. Confidence is hers. She goes in peace. You guys, that story is, I mean, wow. The, the level of boldness to make a run for it in daylight, singing to your slave master as you go, singing songs about the fact that you're going and where you're going. That was my first response. To reading this story when I was preparing for this episode. But then, uh, remembering my own trauma story as well as what others have shared with me, it's actually not unusual. This is anecdotal. I don't know how many or what percentage of survivors reach this point in their trauma stories. It's actually not unusual, though, to hear of people who, in moments of great duress, have something unusual or remarkable or bold to say or do. You are overpowered, so you cannot safely fight. You are trapped. You cannot safely flee. She fled, but with the slave master watching, that's not free. Like, that's not, that's not a safe flight. You have adapted to this evil to the point that it no longer shocks you, so you don't freeze. And you know that being nice to your abuser, or in her case, her slave master, gets you nowhere, so there's no point in a fawn response. When fight, flight, freeze, and fawn are all taken off the table as valid safety options. Victims have been known either to say something remarkably bold, laugh out loud in the face of impending death, act with no apparent regard for the potential consequences, or apparently, as in Minty's case, sing. This is a real-life Psalm 23 moment. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Minty was tasting the anticipation of freedom, hope, courage, joy, and peace right in front of her slave master. She relies on the knowledge, she relied on the knowledge and kindness of others to make her initial escape, and she stopped referring to herself as Minty once she gets to freedom. She's free. She renames herself and calls herself Harriet. She risked her life to pursue freedom because she believed that's what God had told her to do. Next, she risked her freedom and her life to go back to get someone else because that's what she believed God wanted her to do. She loved God even more than she loved freedom. 
She relied on the knowledge and kindness of others, yes, for her initial escape, but also she relied heavily on the knowledge and kindness of others when she was guiding others to freedom. She networked with the Underground Railroad and um, got to know its routes quite well. Our heroes are not usually lone rangers, although they often have unique skills or overcome unique or overwhelming difficulties. Don't miss this. While Harriet Tubman had her unique skill set, her backstory dating way back to toddlerhood, her drive, and her calling, she relied heavily on the knowledge and hospitality of others. Naysayers were a constant presence in her life. This was an era that saw slaves as property, so someone who came overnight and took their slaves away from the owners was akin to a thief. It was easier for them to think of Harriet as an angry, scheming thief than to think of her as a person who was simply living out her faith. The stories that followed her runs towards freedom were incredible, almost unbelievable, so in her day, some people thought she was a fraud. Granted, she was the kind of fraud they were scared of. She could make their slaves disappear so quickly, but her critics still thought she was lying. However, she could not read or write, so she couldn't use writing to keep her stories straight. She shared her stories from nothing but memory. The stories she shared stayed consistent across decades, and she lived a very long time. The consistency of her story across decades strongly points to the legitimacy of her claims. Harriet believed that the terrible slave trade would not end until there was war to resolve it. She still could not read or write, but she made the remark that her illiteracy didn't mean she couldn't help. She couldn't read or write, no, but she she could tell President Lincoln how to end slavery and what the slaves need to get started on the path towards freedom. She served as a spy during the Civil War. Her knowledge of geography and horticulture meant that she could traverse large areas of land, tell soldiers what was safe or unsafe to eat, and use plants as medicine. When she was older, she fought for women's rights. If you are a woman who votes, owns a house, or enjoys legal protections here in America, thank Harriet Tubman, among others. Other ways she fought for human dignity at great cost to herself are adoption and hospitality. I don't know how formal the adoption was, but I do know that at one point she took in a girl and was considered that girl's adoptive mother. So add adoption to the list of accomplishments in her lifetime. She lived to be a very old woman, and there, when she settled down, she was known to always have food or drinks available for anyone who needed it. She also opened an old people's home. So she was a freedom guide, the Moses of her people. She was a spy. She fought for women's rights. She was an adoptive mother. She was known for her hospitality. She opened an old, old people's home. She did not do it all at once. She did not do it alone. And she did not do it perfectly. At one point, she was, this is a controversial story. You decide where you are on it. At one point, she was leading a group to freedom. They had a baby along with them, and the baby wouldn't stop crying. Harriet knew the woods. She knew the plants. She knew what they could do. So she took some plants and used them to put the baby to sleep. Basically, she drugged the baby. But it worked. The baby didn't die, and the whole group made it to freedom. I don't recommend drugging babies. We don't know for sure how many slaves she freed. She wasn't out for fame. She freed them, anticipating re-enslavement or worse at any point. So keeping records of the treks she made and the people she freed would have been arrogant and risky. So we don't know how many she impacted directly through that 
We do know that she touched far more lives than can be imagined. Think first of the slaves she freed, the soldiers she guided, then the women who benefited from her pursuit of legal rights, the slaves who were freed through her collaboration with political leaders, and then her community in, um, in her old age. Whatever parts of her story you find unusual or difficult to swallow, like I'm not hoping to begin experiencing those visions anytime soon, we have to recognize her as a woman who believed in human dignity, freedom, and justice more than she believed in safety or a good reputation for herself. Truly, she was a remarkable woman, and I'm going to close by reading a letter that one of her friends wrote for her when she needed someone to write a letter of recommendation. This is a letter written by Frederick Douglass. Dear Harriet, I am glad to know that the story of your eventful life has been written by a kind lady and that the same is so soon to be published. You ask for what you do not need when you call upon me for a word of commendation. I need such words from you far more than you can need them from me, especially where your superior labors and devotion to the cause of the lately enslaved of our land are known as I know them. The difference between us is very marked. Most that I have done and suffered in the service of our cause has been in public, and I have received much encouragement at every step of the way. You, on the other hand, have labored in a private way. I have wrought in the day, you in the night. I have had the applause of the crowd and the satisfaction that comes of being approved by the multitude, while the most that you have done has been witnessed by a few trembling, scarred, and foot-sore bondmen and women, whom you have led out of the house of bondage, and whose heartfelt, God bless you, has been your only reward. The midnight sky and the silent stars have been the witnesses of your devotion to freedom and of your heroism. Accepting John Brown of sacred memory, I know of no one who has willingly encountered more perils and hardships to serve our enslaved people than you have. Much that you have done would seem improbable to those who do not know you as I know you. It is to me a great pleasure and a great privilege to bear testimony to your character and your works, and to say to those to whom you may come that I regard you in every way truthful and trustworthy. Your friend, Frederick Douglass. Thank you so much for your time today. Please find the Hope Beyond Trauma Facebook page or Facebook group and begin to interact with other listeners and myself there. I try to pay attention to audience discussion in order to meet needs or to answer questions, so your interactions there can help to guide future episodes. I hope you leave today's episode encouraged, hopeful, and thinking about ways to love people well in your off-screen life.